Can you start by setting the scene? Sat in front of um, Shorewood Farm, the actual farmhouse, which probably dates back to 1700s, added on to virtually sort of every century, kind of since really. We face, on the north side of Edale, facing to the backside of Mamtor. And we sat in about 120 acres of, uh, of farmland, what we call in byground, the fields that we can um, you get onto with a tractor and it's more productive. And then behind that is um, Kinder Scout, sort of massive, the kind of whole kind of area of it. And I'm involved in looking after um, 1,200 acres of um, that land, which is um, privately owned either by um, the Knoll family or um, my family. And how many sheep do you have? Do you actually look after yourself? I just part-time farm now because I work full-time for the National Farmers Union. So I have about 250, called mule and massum. I buy them as ewe lambs in sort of September, buy them from Bakewell, keep them for a year and sell them on again, ready for breeding uh, to 18 months old. So they can go straight then to the rams or tups as we call them locally. And then in the winter time, because it was a dairy farm till 2006, so the modern farm buildings um, where the dairy cows were housed, now we have dairy heifers that come from a farm near Whaley Bridge. And I look after them in the winter on what we call bed and breakfast. So I'm paid per head um, per day for looking after those, feeding them, cleaning them out, and making sure they're okay. So they come sort of October time onwards once they're in calf and they stay with me until the grass grows to April time or when they're getting close to calving, they need to go back to their um, home farm. And is this essentially where you grew up? Yep, I was um, been here all my life, apart from going away to university and been to the Edel School, then to Hope Valley College, and then sixth form at Lady Miles in Bakewell, because that's virtually the only route you had in my day. You didn't have the choice you do now as to where you could go to so much. And then I was fortunate enough to go to university, went to Nottingham University at Sutton Bonington, and then had to come back to the farm, which was always the intention anyway, but um, lost my father in 1986 when I was 20. And then did you take on the responsibility quite soon after that? Yeah, came back and, and, and took on the responsibility of the farm with my mother. Mother had kept the farm going anyway because dad had been um, poorly since I was around 10 and my brother was three. And so, yeah, took it on and modernised the farm and yeah, built modern farm buildings, um, expanded dairy herd only to modest size of about 50 uh, milking cows plus young stock from what had been around about 2025. 20, um, more sheep and then in 1992 took on looking after Grindslow House Farm for the um, Knoll family and had the privilege of uh, farming that until I decided to step back from full-time farming until 2006 and take up various jobs representing or working with the sort of farming industry Worked for first job was working with Natural England for a year on catchment centre farming, which is about trying to reduce diffuse water pollution from agriculture. I had the privilege of travelling all around the country looking at how they were delivering that, and then did various things advising farms about what conservation schemes were available. And then in 2012, 
started working full-time for the NFU. And so I've just completed 10 years working for the NFU. And um, that really is, again, it's, it's, it's a privilege. And I really enjoy representing the industry and trying to set the record straight with stakeholders, put the farm in perspective, um, helping farmers out with issues at times, and just generally representing agriculture um, in Derbyshire. And how would you describe the farming community in Edale and however far that extends for you? The farming community, I see that as the kind of constant in Edale. Edale's a great community in itself and, and generally it really pulls together and for a small community, you know, we do a lot of things as a community from Country Day to the infamous barrel race, um, pantomime, <laughs> even a film is being made locally now. And so you know, people come and live in the valley and, and, and they often commute and often, you know, for whatever reason, they can't stay here forever and move away again. But the farming tends to be that kind of continuity and find that kind of continuity and they've got the machinery to move stuff about and to make things kind of happen and and that kind of thing. And yeah, it's that kind of mix of of what have been sort of traditional families, as you might say, and those that have moved into the valley. And what was it like for you growing up here in Edale, going to school here? And how was it, do you think, for your mum to be running the farm? What was it like for me? Obviously, that was the only kind of <laughs> upbringing I was kind of really kind of aware of, really. Um, and it was pretty sheltered because I didn't really go out of the valley much at all. Parents were um, very busy on the farm. Mum was running it from, I say, when I was about 10 because dad wasn't well. And so, yeah, I had to kind of do a lot on my own kind of thing, really. For mum, it was kind of amazing to kind of do this. Mum grew up in Edale, but not from a farming background. She loved farming from an early age and used to help on another farm when she could. But then she went away to school and then she went into nursing and trained in London and she was a high flyer um, nursing and um, trained to be a nurse and then trained to be a midwife and then qualified to teach midwifery and was one of the youngest people who were qualified at that time to teach midwifery. And then she met Dad. She must have known of Dad for a long time because he was a small place, but they met up and then they got married in 1959. So she came to Shorewood Farm there was no running water there, no proper running water, no inside, you know, bathroom or, or toilet, anything like that. So she'd come from really quite a middle-class kind of background um, to this and just got packed up nursing, just got fully stuck into helping with the renovation of this place, putting running water on from spring and you know, renovating lots of the buildings. Lots of them were, were in a bad state of repair. And then she essentially had to run the farm, really, from when um, Dad was ill. To me... Um, coming back and taking on more responsibility for it. So she did an absolutely um, incredible job. Yeah, I mean, look at it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's quite interesting. You know, she's now 90 and, and she just keeps saying it's been an absolute privilege and how fortunate she was to be able to um, live here and uh, and you know, and and farm it and uh, and have, have you know, be out this place and just live here. She just she gets quite sort of yeah. She keeps kind of saying that <laughs> it's really quite kind of interesting how she kind of now views it because she has some very tough times here, very tough times, you know, to bring up two two children and keep a farm going. A stepmother, um, Nancy Herdman, Millie, as we all 
knew her because um, her maiden name was Millington, and so she was known as Millie. You know, she used to she helped a lot with us when we were young, so Mum could uh, spend the time out on the farm. But Mum just worked, you know. Yeah, all farms these small farms are working hellish hours, but um, you know, mums especially so, and so just incredibly tough to be able to do that and just get on with it. Never moaned really. Can you paint a bit of a picture for us what it was like for when you and you were really young, living and growing up here? What was your childhood like? Did you spend a lot of time playing outside? A lot of time outside, and that's kind of because I do have an interest in um, the environment, and that just was sort of exploring kind of doing my own thing sort of just playing about in the kind of little streams and that kind of thing and seeing the pond skaters and uh, identifying the birds and that kind of thing and you know, an old observer's book of birds and sort of then trying to work out what they were and that kind of thing um along with the kind of farming and Millie was an inspiration that because she was very keen amateur ornithologist the other standout thing was that winters were much harsher and it was that battle nearly every winter of being able to get the milk away and I can even remember it to be early 1970s or late 1960s, because um, milk went in, in milk churns until about 1976, when the churn lobby couldn't get out from Sheffield to pick the milk up. We could actually put it on the train at Edel Station, and it would then be collected, the churns would be collected um, from Sheffield Station. But then in the afternoon, you had to go back to one of the trains, and there were empties, and there weren't enough empties, apparently and farmers were nearly fighting over the number of empty churns. Um, <laughs> to get that. But it was, the, it was the vision of just that struggle of getting the tractor back up the lane, that kind of thing, you know, getting supplies in. And then when it was when there was milk tanking, you had to get the, the tank milk tanker to the farm if you could to pick up the milk. If you didn't, you had like a, a plastic kind of fiberglass tank you had to put them, put the milk into and take it down the lane. And just that kind of struggle of coping in the snow and you'd often get bad drifting and you were then going out and trying to find sheep buried in the really bad winters and all that kind of thing. And it was just, um, you know, very kind of hard work, really. And how early on in your life did you get involved with actually helping out? Well, when you're you're on a farm, you just have to, you're just kind of out there, you know. So um, even with our um, children, you you would um, be there with... uh, you know, in a pram, an old-fashioned kind of carriage-style kind of pram, you'd have been out there. I think there's photos of me kind of sat out in a pram and all that kind of thing, you know. And then and then, and then you're out, um, you know, once you can walk about and that kind of thing. And I can remember sort of another sort of bride, I must have been you know, four or five or something like that, and my parents were sort of striding off up the fields to gather the sheep and all that. And I'm, you know, dawdling about like kids are and shouting, wait for me, wait for me. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of yeah. They were good. No, we, 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 it was good. You know, in the shearing days, we were still um, there was still some. My father was still doing hand shearing, you know, and helping with that. And then um, after he was ill, um, Bob Townsend, he was called. He was a farmer at um, the old family. Then he'd come and help um, shearing, and it, it was those things were kind of exciting, you know, those kind of things, people coming in to help and hay making. I mean, that was really tough. We were making hay, all hay in those days and, you know, doing that all, dominated all summer really, making hay. You didn't have a reliable weather forecast, so you weren't sure when to mow the grass and try to get it and it was a struggle and carting it all in by hand, um, you know, the bales and stacking them away and that kind of thing. And you were doing that from, you know, as soon as you could pick a bale up, you are having to help. Even if you couldn't lift them up, you have to roll them together to put them into heaps to make it easier to then pick up and that kind of thing. So, uh, yeah, we're all part of it. 
you can look back on those good times. I'm not sure whether they were really <laughs> or not. Yeah, you can romanticise about these things sometimes. <laughs> I'd like to ask you a bit about what role Kinder Scout has played in your life. Yeah, it's, it's interesting about Kinder, isn't it? It's, it's become you know very well known. Um, you know, the battle for Kinder Scout, the mass trespass, all that kind of thing. And it's kind of interesting because I've kind of seen that almost from both sides. You know, see from the farming side, my father's side, full-on farming, that kind of thing, and the change and the experience of people coming out and accessing the land. The whole, to the way moors and that kind of uplands are kind of viewed these days, where it's more than food production. It's the whole thing about the other benefits, you know, water gathering grounds to the reservoirs, because the water from Edel is piped through to... Uh, the reservoirs in the Derwent Valley, the biodiversity, the now carbon storage and the claimed slowing the flow of water, try and reduce the chance of um, flooding. I'm sort of sceptical about how much we can do towards actually slowing the flow, but that's one of the attributes to it. So it's all about, and then obviously, but the big thing has been, has been access because my family and the Noel family were one of the first to sign the access agreements when... Um, Access agreements um, came with the formation of the Peak National Park in 1951. And that kind of issue of kind of people on there, it's kind of been, because Edel is such a honey pot, such an attraction, and I fully get it why. And from my mother's side, I fully understand the whole kind of access thing because uh, my grandfather, Fred Herdman, who had both pubs for a time in Edel and set up a kind of informal information room in one of the rooms at the Nags Head, when he was at the Nags Head in the um, 1950s and, uh, yeah, during the 19, late 1940s, 1950s, before National Park set up a proper information centre um, in Edale. And, you know, he was there trespassing in the um, in the 1920s and, and, and 30s, going on, on to there. You know, he, he became very much part of the community and working with the gamekeepers and the farmers and that kind of thing. And there's some, you know, fantastic photos from those days. And he was actually, he didn't take part in the kinder uh, mass trespass. but that was actually seen as pretty political. You know, that was um, supposedly really kind of sparked off by what was called the sports wing, I think, of the, of the Communist Party. Um, and, you know, he was um, not part of that. Um, he was in more, more sort of consensual way, although he had, you know, trespassed and that kind of thing. But he could get permits, apparently, from um, um, from some of the owners of, of Kinder, you know, so I think you have to go book a kind of permit and go through. But I think there was times where they were um, they're going up in a group, you know, and the first ones would go through a bit in front and go, yeah, 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 yeah. the back one's got the permit. <laughs> I can't think nobody got a permit, really. There was all kind of <laughs> tales like that, that kind of thing. Um <laughs> so yeah, so I, I fully get it. I fully get why people want to come out, and I think, you know, I think a lot of farmers have become kind of reminded of that during lockdown, you know, because that first lockdown, the weather was that springtime was a lovely springtime, um, April, uh, twenty twenty, and just to think, you know, if you were in the town cities, you were just confined. Yeah, I think a lot of people understand why people want to come out. It's just how that's managed and how that impacts on farming, the leaving open of gates, the damage to fences and walls when people just climb over. And and then with the the internet, people not actually carrying maps, and not even on the phone, not even following maps that show the public rights away. You know, 
sometimes you, you know, I'll come across people and say, can I help you? Yeah, yeah, we're following this route. I said, well, you're not on the footpath, really. <laughs> oh, we're just following this route on the phone. And they're clearly following Strava or something like that. <laughs> so basically following other people who've also gone wrong. And that's kind of kind of the big kind of challenges. And it's just about that kind of public information and kind of doing that. But, you know, a lot of farmers, when you're stressed and tired and that kind of thing, particularly at lambing time, you know, when someone's walked through and left a gate open, that kind of thing, you can see why. Um, farmers get grumpy at times and that kind of thing you know i have to be a bit more understanding in my job i can't get grumpy with <laughs> so just, just a case of yeah gentle right because most people are just genuinely making a mistake and you yeah. just have to um, then try and put them out to help them where to get to because a lot of people you come across and they're looking if you're looking a bit amused they can help you they're not really sure what they've come out to or what they want to do and yeah. we say well you've got the great ridge what people now call the great ridge which we never knew it was a great ridge yeah, which is you say Mamtor or Loose Hill, um, Jacob's Ladder seems very popular, or Kinder. And if you reel off those three, they'll pretty much say yes to one of those, what they're actually aiming for, and it's kind of pointing the two. But they're not quite sure what they're coming to and what they're going to find there, really. Yeah, it's true. It's, I think in, that was me a few years ago. You know, I came, yeah. I came here, I'd seen uh, Kinder Scout on television, and I had no clue really. I had a bit of a route in mind, but I didn't really know yeah. how to use a map. I didn't. Luckily, I had a clear day. So I could uh, at least work out where other people were and kind of follow them. But since I've moved here, I've learned so much and interacting with farmers and understanding all of those issues that you have to deal with every day. And, and for those people that just come, who not necessarily want to go on the hill, just want a bit of a walk on the footpath and say, oh, we, is this the way to Edale? Well, the whole, the whole place is Edale. Yeah. <laughs> the village is really Grindsbrook Booth, you know, or we do call it Edale Village, but it, it's that kind of thing and just got that kind of concept. And um, a lot of people just have just seen photos on the internet and they actually come into that, they'll actually walk up to you on the phone going, Where's this? You know, <laughs> and it's kind of, you know, when the sun's shining, what you can't even, I haven't got my glasses on, I can't even really see what, <laughs> what, what it is. It's like Jacob's Ladder, usually it seems to be a section of the of the River Now just there and a bit mm. where it's a bit deeper and they've seeing people having a picnic around there and looks pretty i think that kind of thing rather than the actual footpath up the side which is really the jacob's ladder mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's yeah very kind of interesting you know what kind of drives people and that kind of big change you know and it's kind of great to see a much more diverse cross-section of the communities coming out here now that's going to be one of the big changes with um with with covid and and, and sort of people kind of finding it really but Again, that kind of takes managing because if they've not been before, then they're much more likely to not understand the kind of rules, the want a better phrase, of the kind of countryside that it isn't. Because a national park, a lot of people think, is just therefore a park. Mm. And they can therefore just go where they want, you know. And be, because when we're keeping livestock, we have to keep them in fields and keep them in batches and that kind of thing. And for them to get mixed up, it can be actually quite dangerous for that stock because they can get into fields where there's too much grass or um, we can get them mixed up. We might have vaccinated one bunch and not another bunch and they can get all mixed up and that kind of thing. So you end up having to put chain and padlocks on to, to ensure they don't get um, mixed back up again. And if my sheep get let out onto the moor, they're then being let out onto thousands of um, acres and so I can't guarantee getting them back in again when I realise the gate's been left open. So I've had to padlock those gates because they aren't access points. So, um, you know, there will be people thinking, ooh, you know, farmers padlocking gates. But that is, you know, they're not, you know, I wouldn't never dream of, um, of padlocking something that was a right-of-way at all. So it's more a case of making what are the rights of way easy to use and making the, uh, 
most of the stiles are now gates, little wicket gates on the um, on the farm, so people can get through easy because we are close to the village. So people who are not kind of serious walkers use the footpaths. And the Pennine Way goes through the top um, two fields of ours. And I don't know what the, the, the figures, if anybody's got any kind of reliable figures, but um, there was a time when there was a, a counter on um, one or two of the styles. But I think as kids, we used to jump up and down on top of this and step on this, <laughs> on this, <laughs> on these styles to kind of make it go around a bit like you do pretty messy around with these kids. Um, so I'm not sure how reliable it was. But you say there was about 100,000 people a year using the, um, the, the Pennine Way. And um, so he does an extremely um, popular place. And it's just how we um, sort of manage those businesses. has the least impact on the residents of Edale, the farmers and the environment. Is it a place where you go to spend your spare time or is it a that, place? That's kind of very interesting. <laughs> People say you must know Kindle at the back of hand. I don't, quite frankly. <laughs> I, hadn't, I know where we go and gather the sheep off. I know that well. But that's really most of the sheep are on, um, always were, on the actual bank sides of Kinder. Um, not the plateau bit um, on the top. Largely, they can't get onto the plateau anyway now because it's been fenced off to do with the regeneration um, work of, of, of the bear peat. Although, since I stopped full-time farming, um, I've always been able to run a bit. I was no good at um, sport generally, but I could, I've always been able to run a bit and cross-country. So I've got a bit more back into um, running on and off when I can still make time for that. And so I do get up into kinder a bit there when I go um, do a bit of running, although I haven't done any really for a couple of years now. But um, although, having said that, the running club is just going to start it up again in Edel, and I've been out with them. So um, How was that? Yeah, yeah, yeah it, was, it was good to kind of get, just get back out again, actually, because I didn't know whether I'd be able to um, run anymore. Kind of thing, really. <laughs> but <laughs> I do have to run off the sheep a bit and that kind of thing. Anyway, so with Wellington's on and a boiler suit. But no, it was good to kind of get the running shoes back on again and uh, look forward to taking part in the barrel race um, next year because it hasn't taken place for three years, I think, now. So uh, oh, it'd be good, good. To, good to kind of do that again for a bit of a laugh. Can you tell us a little bit about the beer barrel race? Because some people won't know about it. Yeah, the beer it. barrel race. That was a group of people. And um, um, Geoffrey Townsend, who was born and brought up in Edale, was one of the kind of instigators. And the story is, you know, the uh, nags head in Edale had kind of run out of beer and um, needed some more beer. So they thought they'd carry one over from um, the Snake Pass in. So um, I wasn't involved in the, the first one or, or two. But essentially, um, teams of eight um, have to carry a, a barrel, which is um, 72 pints, I think. It doesn't contain um, beer, obviously. It'll be too expensive. The, um, it's just all water in the, uh, in the barrels. And you can carry it over sort of virtually however you want, but without using any wheels. Most people use a ladder of some kind and strap it to. And... And there's and then they some take it very seriously and there's some running clubs that come and do it and do it in a time that I just don't know how they do it. I couldn't even run over in that time without carrying anything, quite frankly. And all the all in the kind of team I agree with that. But we still do a fairly quick time and we have won the local uh, trophy um, from the odd time for being um, the first local team. And it's just a good laugh. It's just kind of, and it's very interesting. I met somebody who was organising the Skyline race earlier this year, and he said, he said, I once did this thing called the Barrel Race. He said, never again. He said, I've done some tough races. That was the most ridiculous thing kind of out. So, yeah, it's just a good laugh, really. Then it finishes up with um, um, plenty of beer drunk um, afterwards um, kind of thing. Yeah, so um, hopefully it'd be good if we can get that going again. We're going to have to alter it anyway because the Snake Inn sadly no longer exists as an inn. I think it's just apartments now, and there's nowhere else safe to set off from. 
um, on the Snake Pass. So it will be kind of route that starts near Dale and finishes near Dale. But um, hopefully it will have the same kind of uh, essence of uh, the original one. As long as it doesn't go just from the Nags Head to the Rambler. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> it, it, uh, we're determined to get it back up onto the, uh, you know, onto the slopes, the top of Kinder, so not the actual summit of Kinder, but the um, it never came over the actual summit. We went up to the um, over Kinder, but we'll get onto the onto the plateau bit and then back down again, where there's like a, a steep descent that comes down to what local people call Bungalow Corner because there was a shooting cabin down down at the bottom of this where the stream joined Grindsbrook, and um, we drop then onto uh, the original route to the Pennine Way and run down and um, finish up at the uh, Nags Head. It's a fantastic route. I remember when I first did it, I was really surprised at how quickly you could get over to the northern edge. Yeah, yeah. It, I think it's what they call, they call it a six-minute crossing or something like that that people do. They're going to do. Yeah, it's about the shortest route to get over um, from that Snake Valley side over to Edale. So there is a, there is a bit of a track in the in sort of peak, you know, it's, it's worn short vegetation or slightly bare sort of things over the top. So you can kind of follow that and then you just drop straight down this side and just you just basically drag the ladder and barrels or one person does somebody who's kind of does it kamikaze style and the rest just have to run behind. And bizarrely, even though you're not doing anything, those behind, they struggle to keep up with the person who's dragging the barrel and ladder down, having done it. Um, when I was younger, I was the person that sort of dragged it down in our team. But... Um, one year we did practice and we just came over one time without the thing and I, I thought we'd come to the wrong house. There was no way we can descend down. That's far too steep. It must be when the adrenaline's not running, not flowing. Mm. You sort of think, oh, crack, we're not going down that way. <laughs> 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 so, uh, yeah, so it'd be, yeah, it'd be good to kind of do that. It's just a bit of fun in the, in, the, in the valley. Yeah. But going back to um, Kindred and everything, the whole impact of people having come out there and the massive amount of footfall was causing um, one of the causes of the bare peat you know, where the Penang Way crossed the Bear Peak, that was just, um, you know, 20 or 30 metres wide because everything was going wider each time as the vegetation was, was, was trodden down. And the peat became really soft in, in the wet weather. And so you had to go on to dry again. And it was all getting badly eroded. And, um, and a report was done in probably late 1980s. And that said, really, they needed to use what had always been the alternative route, the Penang Way, which is the one that comes on the sort of lower slopes of Kinder on the north side of the valley, um, drops down to a booth and then goes up um, Jacob's Ladder and out on the top. And where it goes across the peat, that was then flagged um, with old millstone flags that were brought in from mills that were being demolished in the mill towns of uh, you know, further north. And that has cost uh, millions doing that because lots of it has to be helicoptered up, the flags, because A, you can't get vehicles up there and B, they would cause load of damage so it's all been helicoptered out laid by hand that kind of thing which done a tremendous job in terms of vegetation being able to recover up to those flags and um so it was controversial at the time but i think everybody's accepted that's what's happened had to happen and quite a few other paths have had to be repaired as well either with flags or um stones to kind of pitch them where the steep slopes to make kind of steps kind of informal kind of steps kind of going up the side of hills such as where you kind of go up um ringing roger and parts of the nab so yeah, and they've really blend in well and really kind of work well. One of the first bits of Penang Way was through our, our top fields that had become so eroded in those fields you couldn't cross with um, then you know, a fairly small kind of tractor. But it was that deep the ruts in places you couldn't because you wash then through once you wash the vegetation off it's when the water gets in and heavy rainfall events and, um, and and gouge it out. Yeah, so they were some of the first bits to be kind of paved through that. Field. So I've kind of been involved in that and I was involved in the Peak National Park and actually chaired a committee on the. National Park, which 
linked up with loads of other stakeholders, National Trust and uh, other organisations going further north in the Pennine Way. We used to have meetings about that whole restoration work and everything, so kind of seeing that from that kind of side and everything. Then, um, again, that's where I kind of understand the kind of the pressures on the land and the landscape and everything from kind of both sides, you know, what the, what people kind of expect from it. We visit the area and all the different user groups and the, and the farming side as well and trying to mesh all that together. That is the, the big kind of conundrum all the time, trying to uh, satisfy everybody. And when people see sheep up on the plateau, what's happened there? Because you mentioned about sheep being kept off the plateau in general. Yeah, we saw massive change in the late 1980s. After the war, you know, all farmers were encouraged to produce as much food as possible because governments across Europe said never again must we kind of um, become so vulnerable to a situation where there's blockades because we were so reliant on imported food, not just Britain. We were down to about 30% self-sufficiency um, before the Second World War. So there was this big push to produce more food and everything. And so farmers were incentivised by subsidies that were um, head of livestock or if you were in arable areas, you know, subsidies per tonne of grain or area of, of grain kind of grown. So sheep numbers had really shot up. You know, sheep have been kept for centuries in the area because it's not an arable area. So it's good at growing grass, these upland areas, but not generally growing crops. And... So the vegetation had got grazed pretty short, but for biodiversity, they wanted to get more of the shrubby type vegetation, the heather and the bilberry and crowberry to come back. So conservation schemes came in in 1988 to um, pay farmers to keep less sheep and turn less sheep onto uh, the moorlands, the peatlands moorlands, maintain the dry stone walls and that kind of thing. And they've continued in various forms, in various different forms of them. And so... Although the phrase public money, public good is new, the whole concept of being paid to do things for the environment is, is not new at all. I'm 57 and that has dominated my you know, working life really, having those conservation schemes because I came, took on the farm in 1986, as I said, and by 1988, the first ESA, it was called, Environment Sensitive Area Scheme, was um, set up and they've continued in one form or other since with different names. And so got great uncertainty now in terms of what is going to be there going forward you know now we're out of europe and budget's tight in the country and so that kind of supports the environment is causing lots of kind of unease for farmers yeah so that's been the kind of big change a lot less sheep the sheep weren't the cause of um the big bare areas of peat on kinder that was 200 years of industrial pollution because we got it in the peat district almost worse than anywhere else in the country because the prevailing winds from the west so all the heavy industry and mills and everything in in Manchester and the conurbations around there was blowing in. Um, the wind was in the east, then all the smoke and smog came in from um, the heavy industry in Sheffield and Rotherham and Barnsley and some steelworks and all that kind of thing. So it copped it both ways and you know, there's pretty some nasty heavy metal pollutants. You know, and apparently, if you test the peat on some places, it was, if you were doing, say you were developing it for housing, say it was in a housing plot somewhere, you'd have to have the, uh, it tipped somewhere if you were removing it to build your house, to, um, you know, in a licensed site because it contains that many kind of heavy metals. 
and then the wildfires so in dry weather wildfires had um, damaged and the peat can just carry on burning when you've had a real bad fire and so that had caused really bare vegetation lack of vegetation so really bare massive bare areas hundreds if not thousands of acres and so nobody can argue with the revegetation works being taken place and kind of stabilizing that peat again stopping that washing off and keeping the carbon up there i think keeping the carbon there i think the argument is now is about when so because sheep had to be fenced off those areas where you read vegetation them because the lush vegetation that's kind of put in there as a nurse crop to stabilize the peat so the slower growing heather and whatnot can get established you have to put fertilizer and lime on that people doing the restoration work so you can get the rye grasses and other kind of grasses enormously in the fields growing up there and they then die off again after a few years but the other sheep would just go grazing that so that to be fenced off to allow that regeneration work but then unless sheep are allowed back on the vegetation will get too much and become a real risk of really bad catastrophic wildfires in dry summers. So it's a case of managing that vegetation. There's a big kind of debate about how that's done and um, you know when that's done and all that kind of thing. When we see sheep up there, have they basically escaped? Depends which side of the fence you see. It's a bit difficult unless you kind of understand where the fencing is. On this south side, there's a fence that kind of runs from the west side of Crowden Brook that comes down to Upper Booth and then kind of goes just kind of under the edge really, but drops down into Crowdenbrook and back up again, then runs around the south side of Grindslow Knoll, drops down into the top, the upper part of um, Grindsbrook, and then back out and goes over the ridge and then links up with you know, the fence in the kind of snake side. So anything north of that, no, there shouldn't be sheep on there. They do odd ones that get in, and because you know, it had to have access points, we've all got gates in, sometimes they get left open. Um, fastened back or blocked back with a stone or spring breaks and people don't shut them or the fence gets damaged and that kind of thing so um, but they're relatively small numbers that are up there and now because the vegetation has got established they're not doing um, you know a few up there are not doing any great kind of great concern but it's just you know we have to get them back well because we need the sheep so we, we the gatherings so it's another um, job to get them off but to know there shouldn't be uh, ones up there, but they can come in from sort of, you know, some of the sheep up there haven't necessarily come from the Edale side, um, very few have. They've usually come over from the north side of the um, of Kinder. Because naturally, sheep have always kind of tend to come from the north side to the south side because the south side's um, obviously that's facing the sun, and, you know, I think the vegetation was a bit kind of sweeter and that kind of thing. So sheep have always tended to come over when it was unfenced, they tended to come over from the north side and, and the west. Over the, no, 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 <laughs> they'll always move around and try and find the best vegetation. <laughs> Uh, how do you get them back then? What's the process of the gathering? Gathering, we um, work together. So on the this south side that um, is privately owned, then um, there's there's three grazers on that that are grazers of um, from the Knoll family's land, and those three farmers are responsible for bringing some people who have got good sheep dogs to gather those sheep in. So it takes, particularly the shearing gather when they're the, probably the biggest number of sheep, when they use all the ewes up there have got lambs and usually it's hotter weather because it's summertime with that one. So the sheep are more reluctant to move and we have to go really early in the morning before it's too hot if it's, if it's hot weather at the time so the dogs don't get exhausted. And so you, you can have 10 or 12 people then gathering, some from the Crowden end, starting off from Upper Booth and some from starting from Oliver Clough and working um, westwards and then they bring the sheep to um, this farm here and um, we've got a sheep handling system and they sort it here and the sheep all have their own marks so they're a range of marks traditional marks such as horn branding and so you use hot iron to put an initial two initials in the um, in the horn that doesn't hurt the sheep because the horns um, 
dead markings in terms of coloured marking fluid on on the sheep. And then some sheep have um, notches in their ears, put in as lambs, a bit like an ear piercing in a way. And so that's permanent. So that's horn branding and, and ear notching. They're the permanent ones. So even the, even the marking fluid can wear off, particularly if sheep get missed and they're up there for a longer period of um, time. And then there's a mo modern technology in terms of ear tags with um, a flock number every, f and then individual number on that as well. But the flock number, it's very difficult to remember ind people's individual flock numbers. So we still have the markings on there and sheep can lose their ear tags. And so we shed them, what it's called, where the sheep running down a single race and there's little doors on the uh, shedder and people shed their own sheep into that pen to get them into their own thing and then they can walk them back to their farms or carry them back, take them back in, in um, livestock trailers. But most of walks are just local farmers so they can walk them back from here. And then there's you know, a bit of banter when we've got down and everybody's tired and they have a brew and um, bacon sandwich and piece of the cake and whatnot. And uh, yeah, a bit of banter for half an hour while they do that. And so it's a bit of a kind of occasion as well, really. And they're doing that and it's kind of gone on for years. But when there was big numbers of sheep when I was young, then gathering was a, a massive thing. There were lots of different gathers, that many sheep that we did it in kind of sections. We Even what we call the top end of Edel, we gathered a set of pens at the Lee Farm. There was another set of pens when I was really young, actually on the moor bottom, on the west side of Crowden, and you can still see the remains of them there, but we actually shedded sheep there um, in those sheep pens. And then we, then there was new pens built down at Upper Booth Farm itself, we used to go there. And then there was a little gather to this farm here, and then there was a biggish gather to um, Grindslow House Farm with an old family, big set of sheep pens there. And then obviously shirts did their own, then still do, down at another booth. So um, yeah, but now, we, you know, we essentially just for this area we just do um one gather at any one session we just do three gathers all together during the year one for shearing one for weaning the lambs that's when you take the lambs off the ewes in october and then one at tupping time that's when you're gathering the ewes in to put them to the rams or tups as we're known locally so what sort of sheep do we see in edale yes that's a very interesting question because in in britain as a whole we have something like 50 odd breeds of sheep and They've altered, really, even during kind of my lifetime, what people um, had. And the predominant sheep you'll see on um, the hills, generally, are Swaledales. So they've got black heads with a grey nose, sort of fairly fine horns, the female sheep. You won't see many rams up on the uh, the hill, generally. But Swaledales have the nice, big kind of curly horns. The reason for having those is they are then crossed, generally, with... Um, a blue-faced Leicester um, ram. That produces then a kind of hybrid called a mule, North Country mules, and they're probably the most common kind of hybrid kind of sheep. And the reason for doing that is you get sort of hybrid vigour. They have, um, they often have two lambs, and they, they, they're good suckling. Um, they've got, they got, they got plenty of milk, so lambs grow well. Mothering instinct from um, from the mother, the Swaledale side. And the frame, the bigger because the lambs grow into bigger sheep, the, the mules are than the, than the mothers, the swaledales, once they're fully grown. Um, and that comes from the blue-faced Leicester. And they are then sold from these upland farms generally to lowland farms for um, then crossing with what's known as terminal sires. And that just means terminal as it's kind of the end of the kind of chain because we have this stratified sheep 
industry centre in this country where you've got the breeding stock in the hills and they're then sent to lowland farms. So you're not kind of wasting good quality agricultural land on the lowlands breeding sheep. They're being produced on poorer quality land and then sold down there. Now these days, quite a few upland farms have those um, lowland flocks as well, so they're keeping some of those um, mule um, female sheep themselves to use themselves. So terminal, going back to terminal sires, they are then breeds such as Suffolks and Texels and Charolais, and they produce lambs with what's called good conformation, so lots of meat on, because of a round, sort of rounded shape to them if you look at them, and they um, for for the butchers, you know, for, um, for producing meat for consumption. And that's kind of how it, how it kind of works. Before that, it would have been much more sort of mixture of kind of breeds really, and crossbreeding of horned sheep. And it was frequently had Swaledale sheep cross themselves with what's known as lonk sheep, which are Lancashire breed and kind of, they're kind of bigger boned. And you weren't producing the mule sheep and you need a kind of consistent sheep. As soon as you start crossing two sheep together, you get more variety, don't you? So you don't get a consistent lamb. And when you're selling them on through market, you want a pen that's looking really even and kind of even markings and that kind of thing to make the best prices. Um, so that's why they've been concentrated in Swaledale. Having said that, there's more of an interest gone swing back to kind of um, rarer breeds and um, more local breeds. So the real white ones, all white faces and horns, they're um, white faced woodlands and they are very local to round here, um, originate from round here, and they're still classed, I think, as a rare breed, but they're kind of popular. And um, if you want to come and see those, then come to Hope Show and August Bank Holiday Monday. You've got a fantastic turnout of those. And then you've got Derbyshire Gritstons, and some of those are around this area, although the stronghold of Derbyshire seems to be in Lancashire and going a bit further north into South Yorkshire. They don't have horns, and they don't generally see them on the hills so much here. They're more, you'll see those in the fields. And then there's people who have other bits of breeds, hill breeds, such as um, Rough Fell. Um, Dale's bred some Scottish blackface, um, one of the grazers on the um, kind at the moment, he uh, tends to turn Scotch blackface ewes onto there. So people just sort of try and kind of different ones, kind of what suits them, what suits their farming. Um, yeah, so you'll, you'll see you know, a range of breeds in Edale. Do you have a preference? Um, well, I just, I used to have um, Swaledales when we had, when I, turn sheep onto the hill. I don't actually turn any sheep onto the hill because I buy in mule and massive new lambs at six months old. Um, so the mules are, as I said, the crossbred between the blue-faced Leston and Swaledale. And the massum is a cross between a Teeswater ram and um, often Swaledales around here, but traditionally they should be Dales bred sheep for the massums. And the massums are the ones, they don't have horns, but they've got the really sort of long curly coats generally especially before they're shorn for the first time. They get sort of really kind of long, but more curly wool than the mules. So people think um, they do look quite sort of pretty kind of thing, really. <laughs> um, but nothing like as kind of popular generally. That, that, but I can always um, sell a pen or two of those because some farms still prefer the massums. And how have you learned about sheep and about farming here? Has it just been through growing up here and th or through a sense of community? Yeah, a lot of the farming and, and how to farm in these kind of uplands areas is just because you're brought up with it and there's sort of techniques you know sort of lambing sheep all that kind of thing that is um, something you just do because you're around it all the time but then I, I did go to university so I understand the sciencey side behind it as well, as well. yeah it's, it's a mixture of both in my case but um, a lot of people it is um, just learning 
from obviously the parents and um, where they brought up and the relations that they work with and surrounding farmers. Um, farmers are very practical people and observe how something's working on the neighbouring farm or other farms, that kind of thing, and thinking, yeah, well, I could do that. I'm thinking, no, I won't try that. I've read about it, but no, it doesn't seem to work. <laughs> and But then there are, you know, people when they come out of school, they can go and do apprenticeships on farms on other farms. And it's always good to go and see how other farms are actually doing things and uh, and get that experience from a range of farms. And probably might be working away from the hill areas, you know, going to do a spell on an owl farm or a dairy farm or something like that, and just kind of seeing it from different angles and what makes other farmers kind of tick and motivates them. What was it that you studied at university? I did agricultural science. And I'd originally wanted to go to an agricultural college and do more of a practical course. I knew I was coming back to the farm. And then it was a school teacher at sixth form that stopped me one day, said to when they were asking us what you're going to do when I leave school, I said I was going to go to agricultural college. And, um, and then I think they thought I was capable of university. And I think they... I think probably in those days, probably one of the way they were measured on was number of students went to university or something. And, uh, um, and so I stopped in the corridor and said, what's this about going to college? And you go, go and get a degree kind of thing. And it, it turned out as the best bit of advice that I was kind of given really because if I'd gone to agriculture college, I'd have been away from the farm essentially for four years because you had to do a year away before and before you went to agriculture college. Then he said it was going to be a sandwich course. He did a year away in the middle and it would have been for an H&D. And... With the university, I could go straight there, and you got long holidays. So I was able to come back home and help my parents, particularly the busy times, lambing time and haymaking time, because we were making all hay then. As it turned out, with my father then dying, when I was finishing at university, I'd perhaps, if I'd gone to college, I would have never have completed that. And the way things have turned out, then obviously I've been able to put the degree to uh, good use. Was it hard for you to lose your dad so young? It was, but... It wasn't a shock because he'd been ill since I was um, 10. So I always knew there was a risk of um, him in d- dying relatively kind of young, really. So um, it kind of, it didn't come as a huge shock. Obviously, you know, there's never a right time. But in the way things kind of were, I happened to be at home because he had, he'd not been too well. So I'd only been home. So I was here. So mum was able to go um, in the ambulance with him um, to hospital and stay with him. Um, and I was able to just look after the farm. Because we were milking, you see, and you can't just sort of walk away from a farm when the dairy cows are milk, because it milk twice a day, and animals got to be fed. It was middle of winter. It was a hard winter, actually. It was it was snowy. And so I was just fortunate I was here, although Nottingham wasn't, the university wasn't that far away, because I didn't get back. But it seemed so I could just hear and uh, and uh, sort of carry it on. And then Mum, um, I went back to university and did me finals um, with virtually no revision. So I scraped through those, I think. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> the rest is kind of history, really. But... Having said that, I've been fortunate being able to run the farm from a young age. There's a lot of farming families where elderly parents are still controlling the checkbook. Uh, although not many checks are written these days, electronically, but yeah, probably still checks in those cases. And there's people who are my age now, I see that on farms, where they haven't got control of the farm. So I've been extremely lucky to have that, to be able to manage a farm and, uh, yeah, and kind of be in charge of it and, um, and, and shape it. Because that's the thing about farming, it's... It's then handing that farm on, although you know my family might not take it on because they're both working outside agriculture and it's a f- small farm, so it's not big enough now really to provide a family income unless somebody comes up with a lucrative diversification on the farm. Or they might just want to carry on farming it part-time, I don't know. But it's about handing on that farm, hopefully in better condition, than when, than when you take it on. And I hope I've done that. 
not just in terms of kind of infrastructure on the farm, but also in terms of the environment. I planted a lot of trees, fenced off a lot of the watercourses, and allowed some re- natural regeneration of trees, but also planted a lot, planting um, a lot of new hedges on the farm, that kind of thing. And yeah, my ethos is really trying to keep the land itself pretty productive, but then there's room for the wildlife and everything um, sort of around the margins of the fields and that seems to work you know generally in the area I'm not claiming any credit for this at all but with barn owls are uh, back in Edel I never saw a barn owl in Edel when I was young but now the, the residents in Edel there's several nesting um, pairs there's one in a barn at the top of our ground that's living um, there buzzards you know back generally in the country um, ravens I can hear those calling particularly most mornings when I'm out doing the jobs, flying over. And something like a barn owl was always said that was kind of indicator of the environment being in a good state in your area because the voles must be there and for it to feed off. So, you know, we must be doing something right. And I get pretty annoyed when it's all doom and gloom about what's, you know, about the uplands and even the Peak District. You know, there's some good news stories here. You know, curlews generally are booking the trends, you know, through reliable bird surveys in the Peak District. You know, and curlews are in Edale. Admitted, lack wings have declined markedly, and that can't be the way through farming that's actually done that because the land is less intensively farmed now in Edel than it was when I was young. Um, there's a lot more wetter ground because there were 13 dairy farms when I was young. Every farm was dairying in pretty much the 1960s. And you have to keep the ground well drained to do that, to produce the hay and that kind of thing. So... I mean, it's controversial, but everybody's pretty clear who's farming. A lot of decline of the wetlands is due to the rise of the badger population. Badgers were pretty rare when I was I was younger. Just talking point amongst farms, you saw a badger, you actually saw one. You knew where there's one or two sets in Edel. But now on my farm alone, there's probably five badger sets. And, um, you know, I can take anybody much any night to go and see some badgers if they want and out um, with that. And, you know, I'm afraid, you know, they... Because of the largest population, they there's no way when they come across a lapwing nest, they're not going to eat them because of ground nesting. Um, they're not just going to hoover the eggs up because it's a very tasty treat for them. You know that that is kind of um, nature, and that's kind of the kind of the way things kind of change. I think the curlews adapted. I think they generally nest on the moorland, and um, and come down to the inby ground to feed. You know, off the where the worms are and that kind of thing. So um, I think they're kind of therefore bucking the trend um, nationally in the Peak District. Um, and, you know, when we've had bird series in the farm, there's a very good selection of birds here. So, you know, I, th- I think it's getting that balance between productive agriculture and delivering for the environment. It's not either or, it's a way of um, doing both. I think that there's a reputation that farming is a really hard life. How much would you agree with that? It's a common phrase, but it is a way of life. And the whole family has to be... Um, invested in it and on board with it which is kind of 24 7 because when you lambing time you know and when cattle are carving that kind of thing then you've got to be available there to help and that's why i actually don't lamb any sheep i just buy in sheep and sell them on again and um why i don't carve any cattle because i'm working off farm quite a bit and so is anita my wife and the children are grown up and left there's nobody here and you've got to be here when you know when, when there's a birth taking place basically and it's just those unsocial hours, long hours, and don't get me wrong, you know, there's lots of other people putting in very unsocial hours and that kind of thing. But most other jobs where you're doing shifts and unsocial hours, you've then got days off. And it's difficult in farming to do that. So this area is obviously 
really important to you and it's been it is a huge part of your life what is it that makes you wild about kinder scout it's that kind of mix of area of kind of understanding it and the interest the kind of beauty and the history that's what works for me that it's not just the natural beauty that, that was there anyway it is the influence of man what man's done up there used it and looking down on sort of more man-made landscape as well it's then spilled into kind of professional life in terms of the agri-environment kind of interface how it's in, seen as important to the to the nation in kind of whatever aspect and how that's kind of managed and the kind of competing ideas for how that should be managed you know i spent a lot of time in meetings about that kind of thing and trying to put the farmer's perspective land manager's perspective over do you think you'll stay here? Yeah, we we did. I did go through that thought process when I was um, dairy farming. You know, did we sell here and go and buy a place? It's on lower, more lowlands where it's easier dairy farming. Well, more more conducive dairy farming. Did we sort of do that? And um, I didn't really want to move. And Anita made it absolutely clear she was not moving from here. Um, and Adam, we're gonna, she's going to stay here until has to move, kind of old age, or or not even move at all, quite frankly. You know, to um, to use the old parents leaving a box kind of thing. You know, but um, no, we, we both um, we both like it here. The kids absolutely they love coming um, back here. You know, Callum's always particularly keen to uh, come here and go for a walk up Kinder with his friends and that kind of thing. I think Alspeth, she used to hate the place when. Um, she was probably a young teenager, wanted to be in town and sort of nearer the bright lights, but now um, really kind of values it as to somewhere to come and visit. And uh, so she wants her children sort of to uh, come and experience a farm and uh, growing up on that. Because a lot of her, particularly her early man, she was keen on farming when she was young and, uh, you know, bottling lambs and, uh, and lambing sheep, you know, and that's kind of, she's a midwife now. And I think that kind of whole kind of seeing that kind of birth process and whatnot, I think it's probably part of the thing perhaps inspired her to become a midwife. Grandmothers on both sides were midwives for, for Elspeth and uh, and the cousin of uh, Anita's is, is a midwife. If you could narrow it down to one thing that this life has taught you so far, what would you say it is? I think resilience. I know that's a word that kind of gets used a lot these days, but it is that resilience having having to had to cope with things on the farm and often when i've been here on my own and just knowing i've got to get to the end through to the end of the day and had everything done the cows milked and everything fed and that kind of thing and uh, and cope with those things that then gone wrong then yeah with what to do now it's just a case of well whatever the day job kind of throws out you know i've got to i've got to go and kind of sort it out and um yeah that's what it kind of teaches you farming i think you find that with most farmers but having said that Mental health is, is an issue in farming because it can be a very lonely um, occupation. You, you're there in the um, there on your own. You're not going into an office and meeting lots of other people, and that's why markets can be very important because that's a way of getting together, socialise, and talk to other people. And also, it's a strange occupation in terms of you're very conscious that you're being looked at by your fellow farmers because quite a bit what you do is kind of out in the open. You know, often when I've talked to farmers who are just feeling a bit, this is a almost kind of thing, if I do that, what will the neighbours think? Mm. You know, it's, very, it's been very traditional. That's changing because of the change that have had to happen. 
with the change in farming kind of with government policies and that kind of thing certainly during our lifetime probably bigger change than sort of than past generations and a much quicker pace then i think there is a more kind of openness now in farming and realization that things change and that kind of thing but you're still sort of self-conscious about if you're not careful what will neighbors kind of think what will other people kind of think when you bring about you know if you do change what you're doing and that kind of thing so um that can be yeah quite an influence on people it's been really interesting to listen to your perspective Thank you very much for sitting out in the freezing cold fog <laughs> for, for well over an hour. <laughs> well, thank you. It's been uh, yeah, it's been quite um, interesting being kind of interviewed in this kind of long way. I'm, I do a, you know, shorter, punchier <laughs> interviews um, as part of my day job at times, but never such a long interview as this. It's rather. It's almost been like being on Desert Island Disc or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Don't ask me if my favourite track. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, so. really hard to choose. Yeah. And the sheep have come to have a, have a look as well. Oh, yeah. Um, mule, what we call mule shearlings, they're 18 um, months old there. And I saw the horse come over as well. It's Anita's horse and it's, it's just an old, it's retired, um, old age pension of a horse. Actually.